Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 98, Thyroid Nation Radio Live Talk Show and Podcast. I'm Dana Bowman, founder of ThyroidNation.com and ThyroidHealing.yoga. And I'm Tiffany Milanich of GratefulGarden.biz and MendingMedicine.com. Today we are talking with one of our favorite guests, the one and only Mary Showman, about the need to control blood sugar uh, when you have thyroid disease issues. Um, you need to pay attention to it. It's a really big topic. It's a hot topic, and we are going to get to that in just a minute. But before we do, I wanted to mention our April sponsor, Natural Remedy Store. Celia and Eduardo have amazing supplements. It's a brick-and-mortar store in San Antonio, Texas. They have fantastic supplements, and they are also doing a wonderful new tea. It's Celia's uh, blend of her own. It's a woman's formula. It's called a turmeric ginger root tea. It's fabulous. So you got to check it out. Go to 877-543-3501 to order a catalog, and you can also check out their online store. But most of their products will be in their catalog, naturalremedystore.com. For sure, and she makes it with her own hands and blesses the tea, which is huge. I think that's an absolutely beautiful component. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. That's just yeah. just my feeling. But how lovely, right? A piece of a piece of Celia with every tea. Mm-hmm. Enjoy your tea with Celia, right? <laughs> it's the new retreat. If you knew <laughs> if you knew her energy, it would be it would be something that everyone would partake in. Trust me. Really? Uh, well, it doesn't look like Mary's with us yet. No, she's not going to be. I wanted to take just a couple minutes um, really quickly, totally off topic, but very, very important. Um, Tiffany brought to my attention um, some issues that uh, were out there with essential oils, and I wanted to talk for five or so minutes about essential oils and the benefits, but you also have to be careful because that's a really big deal. So before Mary joins us, really quick, side tidbit, we're going to spend five minutes of benefits and, and caution um, for using essential oils for support of your thyroid. Mm, are you re- are you referring to the recent um, mm-hmm. the recent safety issue with the, mm-hmm. the significant chemical burn? <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. Yes, that uh, is something unfortunately that that uh, we've seen more often than not. So we had a gal who uh, was kind enough to share her story uh, with the professional community on um, a chemical reaction that she had, which, as a note, uh, took uh, a series of 12 days to actually hit uh, the worst point. And uh, she shared the pictures, but she had used, um, I'm not going to name the brand because that's really irrelevant uh, at this point, but she had used uh, a brand of wild orange, um, which there are some questions about the species name on that because the species is really not phototoxic. But there was a warning on the pure essential oil wild orange uh, too that it was phototoxic. Please avoid uh, exposure to sunlight or UV rays for 12 hours. Uh, there are some concerns in the professional community that that can be as much as 24 hours just as a note. Uh, but... Then, and this was kind of the perfect storm, but uh, then she had, uh, she had put it undiluted on her thyroid, which, just as a note, please do not use undiluted essential oils on your thyroid. I don't ever. care. I don't care, ever. 
don't use undiluted essential oils ever, period. It's, it, it limits the transdermal absorption. It actually absorbs better with a carrier oil. It's safer. It's more cost efficient. It's just all around as a note. You know, okay, so maybe if you have a fever blister occasionally, uh, a drop of lavender or sandalwood, something like that. But other than that, yeah, just no. It's just not in your benefit ever. Anyway, so this gal put the wild orange with the phototoxic uh, warning on her thyroid and on her wrist, which I'm assuming she kind of was using it as a perfume-ish type of deal, right? And in order to cover the surface area in the pictures, she would have had to have used multiple drops like literally, like just let it ding, 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 ding in her hand and then kind of mm-hmm. rubbed them together and then rubbed them on her thyroid, then rubbed it on her wrist. However, then she decided to go do hot yoga. Please do not combine any essential oils when you go into hot yoga. Okay, it opens up the pores. It increases the absorption rate. It's just not a good idea, whether it's phototoxic or not. Just no. Okay. And then the third component, like I said, this is the ultimate perfect storm. Then she decided to go into a tanning bed. She was going to a special occasion. And um, then she went and exposed it to UV lights. She didn't heed the warning on the label. And then, of course, you know, also had increased that absorption with the hot yoga. And just all I can say is, oh, my God, you know, literally uh, second degree at minimum chemical burns which took a period of 12 days to actually uh, hit its worst point. Um, Just be careful, folks. I mean, essential oils are amazing. They're wonderful. But usage will definitely define the difference between beneficial and harmful. So, you know, do your homework. Don't rely on anybody's opinion, regardless of how smart, quote-unquote, they may seem, or well-educated, or blah, 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 whatever, do your own homework and you might find out more about the information because like I always tell everybody, no one's going to accompany you to the ER, okay, period. <laughs> no one who sold you the essential oils is going to accompany you to the ER. So it's your responsibility. It's a consumer responsibility, sadly, and do your own homework. It will be your choice and your consequence or your benefit, right, just, just period. But phototoxic essential oils are most citrus uh, ranging in severity. So bergamot being one of the most severe phototoxic, lime being one of the most severe phototoxic, unless it's steam distilled, and then there is no phototoxicity to it uh, on the lime. There is a furocumarin-free bergamot uh, that is not phototoxic. It has, that component has been removed. But lime, lemon, grapefruit, uh, angelica root, cumin, uh, taggadies, there's quite a few... Uh, phototoxic essential oil. So do your homework, and that's Tiffany's two cents on on that. <laughs> and just we just love you all, note, and we want you to be safe. <laughs> we we do. We love you, and we want you to use essential oils. We just we just want you to be smart. Uh, they're for support. They're not a cure. And uh, if you want to see the pictures, I have just added them. I thought you did already uh, in the Hushies and Graves. Facebook group, but I just added it just no, now, so you can go in and read the story and the article and see the pictures for yourself. It's crazy craziness. So, okay, Tiffany's two cents public service announcement for the day. Right now, a let's quick tidbit at the end. Hold on a second. Uh, the Atlantic Institute of Aromatherapy, uh, which is uh, Scylla Shepherd Hanger, we thank her so much. She actually created a couple years ago an injury reporting site. 
this isn't to bash any brand or blah, 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 whatever. This is strictly to collect and compile information of safety issues with essential oils, things that people have experienced. That's Atlantic Institute of Aromatherapy. And you can report uh, an injury or an adverse reaction with them. The more that you can tell them about your history and maybe health issues and this and that, the even the better. So uh, for those that, that may have experienced that, there is just so much more information uh, to share on that. And there was a there was a warning. It was a small warning. And I guess people just kind of feel like, I mean, I do. I walk in there and I've got a whole slew of essential oils and you use them so you feel like you use, you know, certain ones often like lavender, so you just kind of feel like they're all safe, and they're not. So there was a, a caution. It was small, but really, you know, unless you use it every day and know what it is, read every label every time. So, Well, my, I hate to just two cents on that, Dana, also, is not every, not every uh, brand or vendor will put those applicable warnings on the label. So mm-hmm. I've seen many people that sell, you know, lemon and different things, and they don't have a phototoxic warning on the label. So you can't just entirely rely on that. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yep. Right. So just plain out, simple, do your homework. And in my opinion, when someone does put the label and the species and the country and the portion of the plant used and the type of extraction, then you're dealing with at least either a very reputable distributor or you're dealing with someone who is, you know, uh, at least looking out for your at safety least as knows well. Exactly. So those are, right. in my opinion, mandatory minimums when you're purchasing essential oils. Just my two cents. And gas chromatography. But Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there are a couple of calls. I know that I have a friend that wanted to, to call in as well. But let's get this Thyroid Nation thriving, Tiff. Why don't you bring Mary on in? Okay. Which one is Mary, hon? Maybe you, maybe you should bring her one. in. <laughs> are you there? <laughs> I'm here. Good morning. Let's get this Thyroid Nation thriving. This is such a treat. Well, it's a thrill to be back on, and uh, I always love doing the show with you folks, and uh, that was really interesting about the essential oil. Uh, I never knew about that, so good information oh God, that Mary. people need to hear. Wait till you see these burns. Holy mama. Yeah. Seriously. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect storm, obviously, but uh, just yikes. That's all yeah. I got to mm-hmm. say. <laughs> okay, well, let's, you know, let's and jump it, in with... Let's jump in with Mary's story because I want to get right into it. People are really interested. This is Absolutely. a big topic. Um, Mary's kind of been topic. through the ringer here oh, the last, what, yes. four or five months? Um, and yes. so let's start there. Start there. Sure. Well, a lot of people know that I have been a thyroid advocate for two decades. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis in 1995. And ever since then, I've been writing and and advocating and, you know, websites and books and Facebook and teaching classes and workshops and things about thyroid disease. And um, I thought, you know, that I had everything under control to a large extent. Uh, I'd always, I'd lost a a significant amount of weight after my diagnosis and getting on my T4, T3 natural thyroid combination therapy, but I had still always been carrying around an extra 15 pounds of weight, and my blood sugar was always a little bit on the higher end, and my hemoglobin A1C, which is a test that measures blood sugar average over a three-month period, was starting to creep up a bit, and I was trying to manage it with diet and exercise, 
as many people do, because I was basically categorized as pre-diabetic or insulin resistant on my way to type 2 diabetes. And um, I had a very stressful period right around the new year this year where my son was very sick and he was in the hospital and I was uh, staying up all night with him for and sleeping at the hospital for weeks on end. And I came back home after he got out of the hospital and he's doing okay now. And um, the next thing I knew, I realized that I had not been paying attention at all to my health over that period. And I had lost a substantial amount of weight, which I thought, oh, yeah, that's great. I've lost weight. But I hadn't really changed my diet at all. And I was just absolutely thirsty all the time. Like I couldn't go anywhere without a bottle of water in my hand. I was urinating constantly like 20 times a day. And I just felt really strange. And one day I got to the point where I was just so uh, out of control. I felt so bad, so brain fogged, so exhausted. I could barely move that I dragged myself up to the urgent care and they admitted me on the spot and I was in something called diabetic ketoacidosis which means uh-huh. that my blood my blood sugar was so high it was actually over 400 at that point and a normal blood sugar is 85 and if that had gone on for another day or two I could have gone into kidney failure and it can actually kill you um, so they put me on insulin and IV fluids, and I was in the ICU for several days, and they ran some additional tests subsequently, and they learned that I actually had autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And this is, uh, so I'd had the pre-diabetic or pre-type 2 diabetes uh, sort of developing, but for some reason, something, and we think it was the stress of the situation, kicked my system into full autoimmune attack on my own pancreas. And uh, so since that time, I've been uh, an insulin-dependent type 1 diabetic. And um, I've, lost, uh, I've lost about 30 pounds since the onset of all of this. And uh, not a diet plan that I would recommend, by the way, to anyone. Um, <laughs> but in, in any case, uh, you know, my, my approach to things is once something happens, I've got to delve in and really learn not only what's going on, what are the conventional approaches to dealing with this, but also what other ways can we get at the root cause of the problem? Because, uh, you know, you don't go from being sort of mildly pre-diabetic into full type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes without something dramatic happening in your body. So I've been now on a mission to learn more about all of these different factors and apply them to myself. And uh, eventually I want to turn around and share what I've been learning about all of these things with uh, my thyroid community and the community of people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes as well. But this uh, today's show really is the first time I'm going public with this and sharing some some really crucial information about the link between thyroid disease and these two different types of diabetes that are on the rise in America. And, you know, type 2 diabetes is, is a plague uh, in the country, and a lot of people don't realize that there are some very key links between thyroid and both types of diabetes, as well as some things that we can do 
to prevent what's happened to me from happening to you. Let's do it. Hmm. That's a that's a major flower field and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a personal flower field uh too. So what yes. so obviously stress uh, tell us, tell us what you've learned a little bit, Mary, as far as like triggers for that, because I know stress, just just knowing diabetes, and unfortunately, a bit too well. Uh, I know stress can often be a trigger uh, of one diabetes, uh, which has to do with the cortisol production and all that good stuff. But, but also virus, virus is something that can, uh, you know, the stress makes you weaker, and then exposure to virus. So, what have you found out as far as triggers that may be? Uh, may have um, brought this on? Well, there's a couple of different uh, factors at play. When it comes to type 1 diabetes, and um, let's, let's explain, type 1 diabetes is often referred to as juvenile diabetes because it most often starts in childhood or the teenage years, but it can strike at 30, 50, even 70. Um, it's an autoimmune condition. So it, in it, it involves antibodies attacking your pancreatic cells and making them incapable of producing insulin. And we need insulin because insulin is what helps take the glucose out of our bloodstream and move it into cells where it's used as energy. If we don't have enough insulin, the glucose continues to build up and build up, and then it can become life-threatening and the body doesn't have energy, and what happens is it starts cannibalizing our own muscles and tissues, and that's what happens in the ketoacidosis. So the, some of the triggers, we know with autoimmune disease that stress is a major trigger, and they don't always know exactly what the mechanism is, but we know, for example, that periods of high stress are often uh, found before the onset of Graves' disease or that uh, periods of high stress can cause flares in multiple sclerosis, Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis. So we know that there's that link, that the stress link to the immune system because stress reduces the immune system's ability to function properly. Um, but I also consulted with uh, one of your guests from a few weeks ago who the absolutely brilliant Terry Cochran, who's here in my area, in the, the D.C. metro area. And she did an evaluation and identified a number of viruses that I had latent in my system. And she believes that the um, stress that I went through and the, the lack of good nutrition during that stressful period when my son was in the hospital may have allowed my adrenals, to go into uh, a major uh, fatigue period and at the same time allowed those viruses to start to take uh, flourish and take control and that the target of those viruses was my adrenal glands and my pancreas. So she believes that there was a direct link between these viruses that I'm carrying in my system, my genetics, and some of my nutritional deficiencies, and that that was a perfect storm of perfect factors storm. that came together and turned uh, and basically flipped the switch in my body and started that antibody production that then started attacking my pancreas and sent me into this type 1 diabetic situation. Um, so I'm, I'm now looking at 
some of those different factors. And, you know, conventional medicine's approach to type 1 diabetes is just to give you insulin. Right, insulin. And, uh, <laughs> and have you, yeah, exactly, and have you take right. enough insulin to cover the carbohydrates that you eat that turn into glucose in your bloodstream. And, um, you know, it's a very imprecise process, even people with pumps and and uh, uh, wearable meters and things, they're still always adjusting and always having to manage with this. Well, in my case, uh, I'm really looking to try to address the root cause, and ideally um, my goal is to get into a remission and to get these antibody levels down. So I'm doing a combination of things. I am still taking insulin as needed, but I'm on a very low-carbohydrate, higher-fat, restricted eating period diet. So it's an intermittent fasting diet. So I only eat between about noon and 6 p.m. And I keep my carbohydrate level very low. Uh, I use my insulin to manage my blood sugar to keep it uh, in range and at a healthy level. I'm also using low-dose naltrexone, which I know you've talked about on the show in the past, which can in some cases lower antibodies and help preserve the organ or gland. And uh, I'm also doing a very detailed protocol of foods and foods to avoid and nutritional supplements that was designed by Terry Cochran to help support the fact that I'm not, um, I'm malabsorbing some proteins. Uh, I have a sulfur sensitivity, so I'm avoiding certain foods with sulfurs. I cannot eat the um, nightshade vegetables and cruciferous vegetables because I have an inability to process them, so I'm avoiding those. And I'm avoiding the meats and poultries that Terry has identified as contributing to a variety of diseases, including regular beef, pork, uh, turkey, and chicken. So instead I'm focusing on lamb, bison, seafood, Cornish game hens and other other wild game that don't that are not factory farmed or even the grass fed uh, protein sources. So the combination of all those things has gotten my blood sugar down dramatically. My insulin requirements are very low, and uh, my I'll be checking my antibodies soon, and I'm hoping to see some evidence of a good direction in those. But I've also been checked for two of the viruses that uh, I had already known I had before this, and both of them I am showing no evidence of those viruses anymore. So things are, things are going in the right direction. And I'm, I want to come back on in six months and tell you folks that I'm in remission and off insulin and that I'm a, um, I'm a type 1 diabetes cure. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a I can't wait. It's be, happening. Seriously. <laughs> I know, um, uh, I, and I always get her first name wrong, she was, but uh, is it Lisa Carnahan, the, uh, the MD we spoke to, who was a type 1 diabetic, Jill, and she Jill. remissed herself and, oh, and was Jill, upsetting. Jill Carnahan? Yeah. Jill yeah. Carnahan, there we go. See, I always get right. it wrong for some reason. I don't want to call her Lisa for some reason. Um, but she reversed her type 1 diabetes and had told us about that also on Thyroid Nation Radio, and, you know, she said that, you know, just even the medical community that she works in was kind of like, that's impossible. And she's like, well, it's not mm-hmm. impossible because I did it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. right. so what it, <laughs> right? It, exactly. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, it certainly can't hurt me because all of the things that I'm doing are healthy and they're within the, uh, the expectations of 
my conventional endocrinologist who's managing the diabetes. So I'm just adding some dietary changes and supplements to see if I can deal with things at the root cause instead of just managing the outer effect, the up and down of the glucose level with the insulin. So, I mean, I don't recommend that anybody who is insulin dependent try to go off insulin. I mean, that can kill you. But uh, at the same time... And even the foods... Even the right. foods people eat can can significantly alter um, their insulin requirements, and so even dietary changes have to really be monitored so very carefully with an insulin oh, ab- dependent uh, diabetic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because I mean, the, the thing, one of the travesties that sort of hit me, you know, because I've always been somebody that kind of questions the conventional approach to things, but when I was even in the hospital, they gave me this diabetic menu. And the diabetic menu was orange juice, muffins, toast, French toast, pancakes, syrup, fruit cups. And it was, it was all carbohydrates and very fast-absorbing, high-carbohydrate foods. And right. I kept saying, I want a, I want a scrambled egg. Uh, you know, I want some berries, which are the lowest sugar, low, low glycemic right. fruit. Um, you know, why, why do they only have foods that are just so high in carbohydrates and see when you have very high carbs like that then you need that much more insulin and there's that much more swinging up and down and fluctuation in your blood sugar and then I went to the diabetic educator associated with my endocrinologist and she was showing me okay well when you eat carbs you need to take extra insulin to cover those carbs and she's showing me slices of white bread and crackers and breakfast it's terrible isn't it And I was horrified. I was horrified because I had already been uh, starting working with um, Terry and also uh, naturopath Dr. Kevin the D.C. area as well, and they had recommended this very low-carb, higher-fat diet to help stabilize my blood sugar and to create a feeling of fullness and to um, avoid these, you know, spiking of the blood sugar. And so... I was already eating very low carbohydrates, like less than 30 grams a day, and it was working out really well. So, um, uh, so how anyway, low how it, low of carbs do they have you going, Mary? Can I, can uh, I ask that question? Or I was doing I was doing 10 to 15 carbs uh, a day total. Um, can you guys hold on one second? I've got a little emergency. Hang sure. on one sec. Ten to fifteen carbs a day—that's really low. I'm gonna. That's have to really that. low. I don't know how anybody does that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and traditionally, um, you know, diabetics need carbs for for part of that conversion. It's kind of like this this slippery slope. You know, not too many. And hi, you know, it reminds hi guys, me of I'm, the porridge. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm so sorry, guys. I've got uh, all kinds of chaos going on here at the house. Um, so, you know, not a flower field moment, but to try to do okay. Uh, to, yes, yes, fine, fine, yes. Contractors have shown up out of nowhere uh, wanting to get into the backyard. So, oh. in any case, um, back, back, to the, back to the interview. Back so. to the carbs. Yeah, my question is, is because a lot of times, you know, I, I've been a food controlled for, my God, 30, 30 years almost 30 years now, but if you go, tell me, you know, because conventionally it's, it, it reminds me of the, um, 
you know, the Goldilocks and the porridge, you know, it's kind of like, you know, not too many, not too little as far as carbohydrates are concerned with diabetes. Um, and there's, you know, there's a couple multiple thoughts out there. Obviously, no one's going to push high carbs with a diabetic, period. But low is, you know, 10 to 15 carbs, that's, that's low. Well, but here's the thing. You're saying that nobody pushes carbs for diabetics, but they do. My diabetic well, right. educator told me, Medicated, oh, you right. should be eating right, right. 150 uh, grams of carbohydrates a day. And oh, my God, no. Ab- I've... And that's insane. Right. That's absolutely insane. So um, in my case, what I have found based on my particular constitution and my diet and what I learned from Terry is that I do very well on very eating avocados and vegetables and a little bit of fruit as my carbs, but I'm not doing grains or rice or much in the way of starches. And that seems to be fine. I'm feeling well. I have energy. I'm not hungry. And uh, I've continued to lose more weight. So I am now at the weight I was when I was 21. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is kind of and I've seen the pictures. I've seen the pictures, so it's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And you know, the lower you are in terms of your weight, the the healthier I'll be in terms of my overall blood sugar control and blood sugar management. Because um, the type of diabetes that I have, even though it was a type one, because it was preceded by the insulin resistance and this little bit of extra. Uh, blood sugar and the elevated A1C is actually considered something called type one and a half, which is sort of a uh-huh. a you know pre-diabetes heading to type two that then trips into a type one. I but type the, one. the the challenge is that there are a lot of thyroid patients out there who have Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism and have weight problems, they have excess weight, they may have an elevated A1C, or their blood sugar is a little bit higher than it should be. And we are now finding that there is information out there that says that these types of levels are actually a thyroid risk, and they cause a, an increased risk of having uh, worsening thyroid problems. So the higher your blood sugar, the more you are at risk of your thyroid enlarging, of having nodules that grow, and of having hypothyroidism worsen, and it also puts you at a risk of thyroid cancer. So blood sugar control is absolutely crucial for thyroid patients, and no one is talking about this. Doctors are not acknowledging it. No one is, is paying attention to this. And, you know, this is something that I think every thyroid patient should know about and should be addressing on a regular basis. And I mean, to the extent that it's not enough to just have your annual checkup and have them check your blood sugar or your A1C, I think anybody who has a weight issue and hypothyroidism should get themselves a glucometer and start doing the finger sticking tests to monitor their blood sugar during the day to see what it's doing and to see if, you know, how high it's getting and how it's responding to different kinds of foods. You know, I would agree with that, except I think a lot of people, unless they're well-educated, can misinterpret that meter 
And if they don't understand how to eat, like one of the perfect recipes to diabetes and prediabetes is to not eat, which so many hypothyroids do. And then inevitably they end up carb loading when, when the blood sugar tanks and they eat their husband and the kids and the couch and everything else, which is usually right around dinner time when people get, you know, they go so long. So if you're doing a monitor during the day, you know, one to two hours after you're eating and you don't understand, like if you, a lot of people assume that if their blood sugar is higher in that monitor, then they don't eat or they eat less food. We heard your doorbell. We know you need to go for a sec. Is Mary still there? Mary? Mary? Did we lose? <laughs> I heard the doorbell and then it was I did gone. too. I did too. Hi, I'm sorry. These contractors are driving me crazy. They, My landlord sent them and I just told them, I said, I cannot talk to you. Go away. I'm working. <laughs> crazy. Cra- sorry, guys. I am so sorry. Okay. We did not it was kind it. of funny because we heard the doorbell, Mary, and then there was nothing from you. We're like, did she get, did she just. What happened? Well, did I they come it, get her? I put I put it on mute for a second because the dogs were going hysterical and they people were like, yap, 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 talking, 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 and. <laughs> Anyway, sorry about that. This is not how I wanted to do this interview. So <laughs> That's okay. Anyway, I mean, life. Um, this is life. We're good. I'm not this, sure this how much you actually heard, but I, I worry about people getting the meter and then not understanding if their blood sugars are higher than they don't eat, which is literally like the worst thing that a pre-diabetic could do is not eat, or diabetic right. for that well, matter. What I, what I want people to understand is that um, – you know, I was go when I was going into the doctor, I had a fasting blood sugar of 80, 88 or 90, which was fine. It was normal. But my A1C was a little elevated, which meant that when I was eating, the uh, my blood was my blood sugar was spiking higher than it should and staying higher for a much longer period. And this is the kind of thing that people need to know. They also need to know the difference between eating what happens to your body when you eat a bowl of cereal versus what right. happens to your body when you eat some scrambled eggs. And Absolutely. now now that I'm a type 1 diabetic and I monitor before and after I eat, I'm actually seeing the impact of these different blood sugar changes and what I'm doing on the blood uh, on the blood sugar itself. So for example, if I eat a meal of a salad with salmon and some asparagus on the side, my blood sugar spikes about 5 to 10 point, period. If, and and I, I did a little test a couple of days ago, and I went and ate a McDonald's hamburger and a French fry, uh, like a small order of French fries. My blood sugar went up 90 points. It went from like 110 right. to, to 200. And it stayed well, that sure, high even for a- the next day. Right, oh. even a kid's hamburger and a small fry, you would have been probably close to a hundred carbs right there. Just Ex- that's exactly. the day, literally for me. <laughs> right, that's an so, algae. <laughs> right, and so and, and you know many people are out there eating, you know they think they're doing uh, themselves a service by eating a a big bowl of cereal in the morning, and then they have a banana with it. And people are using low-fat milk, which is which has added sugar to replace yes, the, to the fat. Door, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. And you know, I mean, or worse yet, they're just not paying attention, and they run into Starbucks and get a giant 
you know, frappuccino and a muffin. Oh, my God. And 120 grams of sugar in that, folks, just kind of throwing it out there for you. That is just, that's horrid. Exactly. (laughs) And if you're not, if you have a thyroid problem and your insulin sensitivity is not good, not only does that spike your blood sugar up, but you don't have enough insulin to clear that blood sugar out quickly. So, again, like I saw in my case, I had elevated blood sugar levels for almost 48 hours after eating that McDonald's meal. And yet if I eat, you know, a a healthy protein, a big salad, some veggies, or a wheat-free, you know, two or three wheat-free crackers that maybe have, you know, four or five grams of carbohydrates, my sugar spikes maybe 10, 15 points, and it goes back to normal within an hour or two. So this is one of the keys. Do you find, Mary, that if you don't eat enough carbs, that your blood sugar uh, will drop more quickly? That's That's been a problem for me as a type 2. If I don't eat enough carbs, then my blood sugar drops uh, more quickly. Well, with the insulin dependent, it's it's a little bit different because a little different, most right? people, yeah, most people are on a baseline insulin that kind of covers you throughout the day to keep your level at a certain point, and then you use the bolus insulin or the small injections before meals to correct for whatever carbohydrates you're eating. So unless you take too much of the short-acting insulin, you're not going to tend to go too low um, or unless you're on too big a dose of your baseline. But if you if your baseline dose is good and then you, you properly use the insulin, you know, you should not have too many episodes of hypoglycemia or going too low, which is very scary and dangerous right. uh, as well. So, right. um, and if you don't That's eat, more of a type 2 problem than probably without yeah, the, I think, the I, insulin. Yeah, I think it is. Type, I mean, type 2 needs to eat some foods, but the carbohydrates need to be limited, and they need to be slower, uh, slower release types or lower right. glycemic types of carbohydrates for optimal uh, response in the system. That's going to give you a much better uh, control, but... Even then, there are there are some now, some studies that are showing that um, the very low carbohydrate diet, even a ketogenic or a paleo or the autoimmune type protocols, where you're limiting the carbohydrate intake significantly, can actually reverse type two diabetes in people and restore them back to normal normal blood sugar functioning. Um, but it's a tough diet for some people why it's been easy for me to be on a very low-carb diet, but it just seemed to agree with my system, and I just haven't been hungry, and I'm not really craving sugars and carbohydrates. I've also found a lot of good substitutes for the thought six months ago, you would have never thought I was going to be eating something like chia pudding, but now it's one of my favorite go-to snacks. So, um, you know, there's all sorts of, of ways to manage the cravings or to, to be full. And for me, it's been easy, but I know it's harder for some people. And, um, but there are a lot of benefits to it because not only does it just peel off the weight for a lot of people, but it lowers the blood sugar, it lowers the insulin requirements, and it helps keep things. And the more you lower your weight, the better control you have over your blood sugar. So it's it's kind of a combination that, that packs a punch. Absolutely. Okay, so I, I, a couple things really quick, just before we keep moving on, because I'm trying to keep this 
clear for some of the people who aren't quite sure and don't know the jargon and, and exactly, you know, how di- diabetes works and, and their blood sugar and things. So the connection between thyroid disease and blood sugar, I want to talk about it more on a, on, on a lower, easier level for some people, but also basically kind of what it feels like I'm hearing and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like everybody's so bio-individual because you had your testing. You went with the amazing Terry Cochran, and you got your things kind of figured out and situated. So your plan works for you, really, because, you know, here on Thyroid Nation, we're always saying, listen to your body. You know, AIP may be for some people, but not for you. You don't know exactly where your, where your uh, blood sugars are. You don't know, you know, all the different things that are going on with you. So can we talk just a little bit? Can we just make it bring it down just a couple of notches really quick just for a moment? Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, we have, we have a couple of things going on here. Number one is that the, if I take a normal, healthy person off the street who has no weight problem and has no underlying endocrine or thyroid or diabetes or prediabetes, their fasting blood sugar is going to be between 75 and 90 in the morning uh, after not eating. And if they eat their blood sugar, typically, as long as they eat a, a you know, relatively decent meal or even a, a carbohydrate-rich meal, their blood sugar will go up to probably no more than 140. And then within about two or three hours, it will return back to below 100. So this is the normal pattern of a normal person. Um, when we and what happens is, you know, they eat the, the the food. It's converted into glucose in their bloodstream. Their pancreas releases insulin. The insulin takes that glucose and stores it in the liver, or you or burn uh, helps it burn off if it's needed right then. The rest of it is stored in the liver as glycogen. And then later on, when your body gets a little hungry and it says, "Oh, I'm needing some energy." the liver releases the glycogen as glucose back into the bloodstream to keep that blood sugar from going too low and so keeps it stable in that range. So this is the mechanism of how it's supposed to work. What happens is with type 2 diabetes, we are the insulin gets becomes unresponsive. It becomes deaf. It does not listen to what's happening in the body. So we're eating carbohydrates or eating food that's converting into, into blood sugar, and the insulin is coming out of the pancreas, but it is not doing its job at clearing the glucose out of the bloodstream. So the message is delivered to the pancreas, make more insulin, make more insulin. And so we keep making more and more insulin until the body stops paying attention to it, which is when, it, when we move into insulin resistance. And that means then that we're going around with a very high level of blood sugar with an inability for the body to actually clear it out and use it for energy. Uh, this contributes to weight gain, fatigue, and, a lot, and central obesity, especially in the belly. And we end up you know, eating less in some cases, and gaining more weight or having an inability to lose weight. The other uh, issue there is that now we know from a scientific standpoint that high insulin levels are driving the thyroid to get larger so that you can develop a goiter. It makes nodules grow. It makes hypothyroidism get worse. And it increases your risk of thyroid cancer. So it has a double whammy. Not only is it 
pushing us towards diabetes and obesity and heart disease and all these blood sugar-related issues, but it's also making our thyroid condition worse, or in the case of a type 2 uh, diabetic or pre-diabetic who hasn't been diagnosed with a thyroid problem, it may tip them into a thyroid problem. So that's one category. Then on the other category, we have the people like me who have Hashimoto's as a cause of their thyroid problem. So we have an underlying autoimmune disease, which can put us at risk of other autoimmune conditions. And in some cases, the immune system just gets deranged and decides it's going to attack another organ, gland, or tissue. In my case, the pancreas instead of the thyroid. And it started to attack the the pancreas with antibodies and caused the inability to produce insulin at all. Um, So it's not that the insulin's coming out, but it's not doing its job. It's that there isn't insulin being produced to actually do the job. So that's a different uh, factor. But at the same time, those high glucose levels that result before someone with a type 1 diabetes gets diagnosed also contribute to all of these issues with the thyroid. So as far as the, the bio-individuality, you know, as, as we've learned from Terry and what I've learned from Terry and I know that you have in terms of talking with her as well, is that we, we all have a lot of different genetic differences and nutritional pathways that operate in different ways. So for some of us, we can't absorb protein. Others can't absorb fat. Others have MTHFR mutations that create inflammation. Some people have sulfur sensitivity or gluten intolerance. Uh, So there's a variety of different factors that can trigger certain genes to express or prevent certain things from happening in the body that they're supposed to. So this is why a a diet that works for one person isn't necessarily. I mean, if I take someone who has no gluten or wheat sensitivity and say, every problem you have is going to be solved by going gluten-free, that's ridiculous because if they don't have a sensitivity or an allergy to gluten and wheat, going gluten-free is not going to do much of anything for them. But And oftentimes that, they're, they're eating just as many carbs. I just want to throw that in there, Mary. <laughs> gluten-free exactly. food can be right. really they're, toxic they're as far as carbohydrates is concerned. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So... So we need to we need to pay attention to that. There's no magic bullet of eliminate the food and everything's going to be great. It really is individual to each person. But at the same time, there are some general guidelines that are are pretty standard across the board. And number one, um, the the track in obesity is almost directly related to increases in carbohydrates in the diet so if we can and simple starchy carbohydrates so if we can get the majority or even all of our carbohydrates from vegetables primarily a little bit of fruit and focus on lean organic pesticide free proteins nuts and seeds and in some cases avoiding uh, dairy because that's a sensitivity issue for a lot of people Many people will find that that will improve their blood sugar. It will lower their A1C. It will lower their fasting glucose levels. It will help their insulin sensitivity, and it will result in weight loss. So that, to me, and it also reduces inflammation, which has an effect on all of these autoimmune issues. So from that standpoint, I do feel like an anti-inflammatory 
carbohydrate-controlled diet is a good idea for each for each person, uh, whether you've got a thyroid issue or an autoimmune issue or a diabetes issue, there's really no downside to doing to, to, to eating that kind of a diet. That said, the foods within the diet that you may have an individual reactive a reactivity to or sensitivity to are going to be unique. And you know, you can work with someone like Terry to find that out. You can have allergy testing, ELISA testing to determine your food sensitivities, or you can do what a lot of doctors recommend, which is a rotation diet and eliminate dairy for a few weeks and then reintroduce it and notice symptoms or same thing with wheat or uh, certain kinds of fruits or nuts and things like that. One of the things that I always tell people is, you know, go on a really clean diet and see what your body does for a month or two. And if you feel better, have more energy, your skin looks better, you lose a little weight, you're less bloated, that's telling you that you're in the right direction. So it's something that being a close observer of your own symptoms can also help you identify. And then again, you know, I'm, I'm now a firm believer that we want to also monitor our body's reaction to certain foods by using a glucometer to kind of do a test uh, of different types of things. For example, you know, some people do really well with oatmeal. It's a slow-release carb. It's a high-fiber carb. Not me. In my, <laughs> yeah, no. And see, if I eat oatmeal, my blood sugar skyrockets, and I'm starving 10 minutes later. Exactly. So, <laughs> so we, oatmeal you know, like death food I, and for I, me. Exactly. And if you take that, if you did a, a blood sugar test 30 minutes or an hour after eating oatmeal, you're going to see that this has spiked your blood sugar, you know, maybe 50, 60, 80 points. Um, oh, I have sure. the same problem with quinoa. People are always saying quinoa is so good for you. And I love quinoa. It tastes great, but it spikes my blood sugar like nobody's business. And so we need to know that the, that the foods that we think are healthy may not be healthy for us. And again, that can be self self monitoring through rotation diet. It can be blood testing for chemical sensitivities. It can be working with a really savvy nutritionist like Terry Cochran. It can be using a glucometer to measure your blood sugar response to certain foods. So there's a number of different ways. And it can simply be trying different things, seeing how you feel, and looking at your, your body's response in terms of symptoms, weight loss bloating, and other types of reactions. Okay, sure, I, I don't know if you're you moving quick... around really quick, Mary. I don't know if you're moving around or not, but your your sound keeps going in and out. I don't know if it's the it's the people in your backyard. That's what's doing it. No, um, so I don't know if maybe you could sit still or something, but I wanted to just <laughs> throw I'm that in there. Around, so, um, okay. I think I'm in a, in a bit of a spot, so I'm going to, is that better? I think you're in just kind of a, a something warp right now, Mary. It's yeah, like... you are. It's very strange. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe maybe move to another place. Is any better? No. Okay, I'll let you know when it's good. But I, but I wanted I to mention. I gotta ask you. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, so basically, yes, we are all bio individual, and you can do that in lots of different ways. Because, for instance, Tiffany has been a food controlled diabetic for thirty years, so her situation is going to be totally different than the next person's. So really, it is bio individual, right. and you can do that. You know, like you said, the rotation diet or get some testing or do some things, but everybody really is very different. So quinoa may work for you and, and oatmeal may be great, but 
pretty much oatmeal doesn't work for me either. So, you know, you just got to well, find actually, your balance. If I remember, if I remember correctly, Terry had mentioned something about quinoa being a genetic issue. Is that or is it genetic or sulfur? I don't remember what it was because everybody talks about how healthy quinoa is. And quinoa makes me feel like I'm, I, I know for a fact that my blood sugar shoots sky high because I don't need the meter anymore. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, that's not working regardless of combining it with the right amount of protein and even fitting that quinoa into the neat little carbohydrate range I have, which is 30 at a meal. But um, and, and Terry, when we interviewed her, had mentioned something about uh, a certain genetic or enzyme problem not being able to process quinoa, and I don't remember what it was, so don't. Don't quote me on that. But type 1, just for the listeners, type 1 is very different than type 2 as far as, uh, you know, um, the nitty-gritties are concerned, let's put it. I mean, there's problems, obviously, with insulin and the pancreas, but one is a failure to produce and the other one is problematic depending on what you eat. In other words, type 2s can, can have a significant difference with dietary changes. I know, Mary, you said type 1 as well, but especially type 2. I mean, you literally can reverse your condition uh, with proper nutrition and, and uh, with a type 2 diabetes. Right. And one thing I did want to mention is that there, there is a new study that just came out that's ab- absolutely fascinating to me, and it's looking at the type 2 diabetes drug metformin. And metformin is also known by its um, brand name glucophage. And metformin is considered the first-line drug for type 2 diabetes. And what it does is it helps the body become more sensitive to the insulin that you're producing so that it helps to reduce that insulin resistance and clear the blood sugar and and result in lower blood sugar. And while I'm not the kind of person that usually says, okay, run to a drug, what they have found is that metformin, I mean, occasionally it has some, some side effects in some people. It can make people feel a little nauseous or a little tired, but it does not seem to have, it's been used for, for a couple decades, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of negative side effects like there are associated with a lot of those other type 2 diabetes drugs that they're advertising constantly on television these days. Um, but the metformin is now being considered as a possible part of thyroid treatment because the metformin specifically by a variety of actions helps to lower the TSH level, reduce the size of the thyroid. It can actually reduce the size of thyroid nodules and it lowers the risk of thyroid cancer. So they're now looking at people who have type 2 diabetes who are not on metformin, who are managing it with diet. Uh, and, and they're looking at adding in a low dose of metformin as a protective preventative so that they do not develop a thyroid problem or that their thyroid doesn't enlarge, nodules develop and get bigger, and that thyroid cancer becomes a risk as well. So it's something to think about, uh, again, because it's a fairly uh, well-studied drug. It does not have long-term crazy side effects or uh, the kinds of things that are uh, associated with the, you know, some of the other type 2 diabetes drugs increase your risk of thyroid cancer and have risks of heart problems and a whole lot of other 
issues and things like that, but metformin is considered to be one of the one of the safer, more benign drugs that are in wide use out there. So it's something to think about for people who are trying to manage blood sugar, maybe they're not having as much success with their diet, but are either have a thyroid problem or want to prevent the development of a thyroid problem and they're already type 2 diabetic, is to consider the possibility that metformin therapy may be a good part of your overall treatment approach. And again, I, hi- I highly recommend... Easy. Go ahead. Sorry. I highly recommend berberine, also the herb, which is shown... Uh, in PubMed to work just as well as metformin, uh, literally without any side effects. You know, I know, yeah, so, you know, to me, herbals are, you know, sometimes they can be a better approach before And start there, uh, pharmaceuticals. right? <clears throat> yeah, because now they're saying, you know, pharm- pharmacogenetics, meaning, you know, uh, our genetic makeup can decide uh, literally whether uh, a medication is beneficial or harmful. That's, uh, you know, just that's information. A whole other show. I think genetics is sort of, the, I mean, that's a whole other show. <laughs> totally right. Exactly. And <laughs> that's one the, other the, thing the, I wanted to mention, um, Tiffany, you said about the berberine. There's also, um, you had a guest on a while back, Dr. Viana Muller and, from Whole World Botanicals, and they have a product called Royal Abuta. And the Abuta is from a plant, a South American plant, and it is, um, being used all over South America for type 2 diabetics to lower blood sugar, and it's very effective. And they've done some studies that have put it up against type 2 diabetes drugs and found it also to be equally effective. And, again, you know, very few side effects, uh, no dangers. It's a natural product. Of course, we always still have to be careful with natural products that have a medicinal effect, so we don't want to overdo it. But the Abuta... Uh, which comes in a liquid extract form has, and also a pill form has been found to be very effective at blood sugar management as well. So there's, there are some supplements like that that may help to um, manage uh, some elements of the type 2 diabetes. And I'd be interested down the road if, there were, if they would ever do studies on things like the berberine or the royal abutta to see if they have the same effects on the thyroid as the metformin does. Because if we're lowering the blood sugar, and that's the problem, and the insulin levels uh, are being lowered, maybe they would have that same effect on thyroid function as well. I mean, we don't know yet, but it would be interesting for somebody to research it. It For sure. i got to ask you. Go go ahead, ahead, Tiff. Go ahead, Dennis. No, no, I'm, I'm, go ahead, honey. No, because mine's just a fun thing. Keep going. I want to (laughs) go. No, I was just going to ask Mary. It was interesting to me, Mary, because I've had, you know, pretty much I eat the same way. I follow the same range, you know, uh, six small meals a day, pretty much 15 grams protein, 30 carbohydrates. That's what works for me. But I noticed that when I went on thyroid medication, and, of course, I've got that Epstein-Barr precursor, so the, the thyroid medication, you know, that was my big trigger. But what was interesting to me is I literally went from 120 down to now I'm on 30, uh, of armor because my blood sugars and my, my A1C and my cholesterol started to climb as my thyroid, uh, as my TSH dropped and my T3 went up. So have you noticed anything like that with, with uh, increased blood sugars in, in 
I, I, I don't want to call it over-medication, but maybe uh, aggressive treatment of hypothyroidism. Any, any uh, relationships that you've seen with that in your studies? No, that's actually, that's actually pretty anomalous because I've heard the opposite. Uh, I remember back when Armour Thyroid reformulated and um, people were finding that their TSH was going up and they weren't getting relief of their symptoms because something in the reformulation wasn't processing with them. And I, I talked with a number of type 2 diabetics at that time as well as type 1 diabetics who said that their blood sugar control became terrible, their blood sugar went up and their insulin wasn't working as well or their diabetes meds weren't working and their diet wasn't working uh, when they were on the new reformulated armor and they couldn't figure it out until they found out that about the formula change. But then when they switched to a nature throid and got on a, a consistent dose of that, the blood sugar problems got back on track. So, But I've never heard about somebody being... Uh, treated aggressively or being in the in the optimal range or the lower end of the reference range, you know, leaning towards hyperthyroid, having uh, having that throw their blood sugar levels out significantly. But it's all related. It's all part of the endocrine system. So again, that bio individuality thing. Everybody's different. Crazy so I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you know. Well, we know you have to go. I, I wanted to thank you so much. I did want to also tell you, you know, I've been getting lots of questions. It's such a big topic. We have, I have a friend of mine. Her name is Linda Young. She's got a great support group on Facebook. She, you know, is, their whole group is uh, big Mary Showman fans. They talk about your book and all that kind of stuff. And she went through the same thing you did after getting out of the hospital for a week. She just messaged oh, me. So this is a really big deal. And um, we're going to, we're going to keep, we're going to follow up with you and see how you're doing in six months. We're going to have you back on the Absolutely. show. And we thank you so much today. We know you're busy well, and we know you, you have so to much, go. Mary. It's been my pleasure and sorry about the contractors and the dogs, but uh, like you said, it's life and uh, we got to just kind of roll with the punches and stay in balance. Right. Well, That's thanks right. for taking the time. Thank you, ladies. You take care. Thanks for listening, okay. everybody. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <clears throat> oh, my gosh, that was so nice of her to, to to do this today. Yeah, that was great. I mean, she's got some great information. And, and, you know, really, I mean, for Thyroid Nation Radio listeners, we love having you, and we're really, you know, honored to be able to serve you every week. And there's a lot of information, and it is not easy. And so, really, you just need to, like, I'm going to start, you know, teaching my kids and whatever to – Keep all your records and pay attention and be more, you know, involved in your own eating and life and health. You know, I mean, you can take things so for granted. You go have the hamburger, like Mary said, and you just don't realize that it stays in your body and all the, the effects it has can, can last for a while, you know. I mean, so we're all individual and you all really basically our point here is that we're trying to give you information, but you really need to just pay attention to yourself and, and do some research and some reading. It's, you know, maybe sometimes not the most fun, but. Helps you live longer. Well, and there's, you know, I mean, there's some happy, healthy tips that apply to everybody. You know what I'm saying? Avoid right. the food coloring. Avoid the artificial foods, the artificial sweeteners. Avoid overeating. I mean, in America, I think one of the biggest things that's, that's you know, uh, applicable to diabetes is, is we overeat in this country. Our portion sizes are huge. I mean, when you look at even, say, for example, what 30 carbohydrates of rice, looks like seriously like it's like less than the 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 palm of your hand 
it's not much food. So when you look at that and you're like, oh, oh my God, are you serious? Like that's, you know, but then you eat it and you eat frequently and you're eating, you know, within healthy ranges and whole healthy foods. You find that you're not hungry. You don't crave sugar. I mean, there's just some really good guidelines that apply to everybody. Um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's, absolutely. There's, there's helpful things to all of that. And avoid sugar. I mean, you know, sugar is, is really death for America. We, we overeat it. We eat bizarro, you know, types of sugars. You know, artificial sweeteners are a major problem for blood sugar control, which is terrible because they tell all diabetics to eat artificial sweeteners. But, you know, high fructose corn syrup, uh, you know, that's a death food. Even something as natural as agave nectar will trick the liver to release fat into the bloodstream. You know, stick with just good, whole, healthy, natural foods. And that's good for everybody, diabetes or not, thyroid or not. You know what I mean? Yep. Okay, we're going to wrap up this show. We've talked about lots of things. Um, we thank Mary Showman. She's, uh, you know, one of our favorites. You can find out everything about uh, Mary Showman by going to lots of different websites, but her main website is thyroid-info.com. <laughs> She's written 13 books. She's on Amazon. You can find her there. One of my favorites is Living Well with Autoimmune Disease. So check that out. She's got some exciting things coming up as well. She'll be writing for a new site. So she's a busy woman, and we are thankful to have her on the show today. Very thankful. Very thankful. And, that she again, as always, we wanted to thank you um, for being here. We do this for you. And if you like the show, go to my page, thyroidation.com, and click the radio tab, and you can leave it. There's a button there for you to go straight to iTunes to leave a review, or you can just go straight to iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. Also, don't forget our April sponsor, Celia and Eduardo Carranza, Natural Remedy Store, fabulous products, tons of supplements. You can see all of the supplements um, by ordering their catalog. And uh, one of their highlight new items is their women's formula, turmeric ginger root tea that Celia has come up with just for us ladies. You can check that out. I've seen the picture in the new, because it's very, very new, so it comes in a really pretty tin and everything. You can check that mm-hmm. out as well. The phone number is 877-543-3501. And if you're in San Antonio, stop in. They've been there for 17 years, so you might check them out. So thank you to Natural Remedy Store and Celia and uh, Eduardo. It's fabulous having you guys with us this month. We really, really appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much for the support. Of course, yeah. please be sure to check out Thyroid Nation Essentials at thyroidnation.com. Lots of lovely, safely diluted uh, <laughs> products for you to <laughs> in your daily regimen. Yep. And you can follow us on all the social media platforms and check out the Hashis and Graves support group. We put lots of information. I shared that picture from today earlier in the episode about the essential oil and the chemical burn so you can see how that It's a little Mm -hmm. scary. We do support and love essential oils, but we want to be mindful and smart and uh, cautious when using them. So we are just trying to educate and spread the word. Absolutely. Of course, Dana and I always want to remind you, most importantly of everything, that bio-individuality, sorry, my little tongue-tied there, uh, wellness is a journey, and it takes continual maintenance evaluation. You have this phenomenal diagnostician that's unique to you make sure to listen to that voice your body will tell you and please be mindful of what it is telling you yep 
This is Danny, your Thyroid Nation, Green Gatika. And Tiffany Milanich. Bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united we heal. Thanks, guys. See you next week. We have a really great guest, Elle Russ. She's written a book. I'm just going to throw it out there really quick. I've got it sitting in front of me, The Paleo Thyroid Solution. Beautiful woman. Can't wait to talk to her. Is it next week? Or maybe Woo-hoo. it's next week. Yes, I think so. Woo! Bye, guys. See you next week.